Okay. Hello, Alain. I've got somebody's laptop. Welcome, Kiori. Welcome to the event entitled The Sea, The Sea. One of the preoccupations or obsessions of my guest, Philip Hoare. Another of those obsessions led to his first wave, if you'll excuse the word, of books, biographies of the wilder figures of 1920s and 30s, Oscar Wilde being one of them, Noel Coward and Stephen Tennant. Before that, it was the music industry for him, David Bowie and uh, Philip Hall's abiding obsession these days, as you'll know, is the ocean and his homage to Herman Melville, Leviathan or the Whale, won the 2009 Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction. Then came The Sea Inside, in which he seamlessly moves from oyster catchers to Thomas Merton to thylacines, Tasmanian tigers to you and me, uh, to Sri Lanka and to New Zealand, and of course to Wales. His latest rising tide falling star is another mix of travelogue and history, nature writing, memoir. You, know, you run out of descriptors for Philip Hoare's books. Uh, and there are whales. His friend, American movie maker John Waters, has told him that he writes whale porn. <laughs> better than any erotica that's ever been written. Which is an endorsement that didn't, as far as I know, get on the cover of any of Philip Hall's books. Please welcome him, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Now, you famously go for a swim every day. Today, okay, he came in a little blue and had been swimming in the river. But it's yesterday I want to hear about because yesterday was Arctic, right? Did you go for a swim yesterday? I did, yes. No wetsuit? No. What is that? <laughs> you know, that's like self-mutilation. Yeah, I think it's my Catholic upbringing. I have to abase myself. What, what really is it, though? Um, it's leaving all this. All this stuff. It's leaving the the, 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 the the screens that you sit behind, the uh, demands that the world bombards you with now down that invisible tube, you know. And, um, and within 15 minutes of leaving my house, you know, I can't see the sea from where I live, but it's a cycle ride. And I'm free of gravity. Uh, I, I'm no longer... Uh, bowed down by this land-born, land-bound um, uh, existence that we all we all are sort of forced to live, and I'm free. And people tell me that I should tell people where I'm going. I mean, I sometimes am swimming at four o'clock in the morning on a February morning in the dark, and and uh, they tell me I should I should take a phone with me. Well, that's not much good. Um, you can't take a phone out with you. Stuff you don't need swim trunks, even if I wore swimming trunks. So, um, and uh, it's that thing about you know not waving but drowning. You know, I mean, that, that, I, I, you only have to be twenty yards out to drown. You know, ten yards out to drown. I, do, I don't know why you're still alive. <laughs> I mean, I. there's a there's a there's a bit. Is it is it in your latest book? There's mm. a, a huge storms in southern England. And you went out into this. Or there was one day that one even day. you couldn't go out. Yeah. The, but yeah. nevertheless, mm -hmm. you, you did and you could easily have drowned. Is that yeah. part of the charm of it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Nearly the, the dying. Mortality, yeah. I think because um, uh, we feel we're immortal in this society. You know, we feel as though it's uh, the great reason why so much America is uh, medicated um, because... They all believe that you know you can you can forestall the inevitable, and and I, I'm not inviting the inevitable, but I am uh, addressing it because um, that sense that every swim is a potential death um, to me is is an antidote. Uh, this people tell you to be careful. I, I don't want to be full of care. I want to be careless. I want to have less care, um, and if that involves you know, surrendering to a greater element, that so be it. Um, for me, it's, I'm, I'm not a triathlete. I'm not doing it for exercise. Uh, it's, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a communion. 
I know it sounds pompous and pretentious, but that's what it is. Because and is it all, also the regularity of it? The, yeah. The punctual yeah. regularity it's exactly of it? that. It's kind of monastic. In fact, where I swim in Southampton is in front of a, 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 a Cistercian Abbey, a ruined Cistercian Abbey. Uh, the monks probably did the same thing. They would mm -hmm. meditate in, in the water overnight. I was thinking about your monasticism when you were writing about Thomas Merton. Yeah. I can't remember why you were writing about no, Thomas Merton. Neither can I. <laughs> you see, I mean, I, there are lots and lots of, of roads that your books mm. go down, mm. and I can't remember how I got there, mm. but it doesn't matter. <laughs> but I wondered whether you felt a fellow feeling with Thomas Merton. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I actually still practice as a Catholic, as a very abnormal kind of Catholic, <laughs> um, you know. Uh, but uh, it's, um, uh, for me, that idea of... Retreating from the world to see it better. Uh, Thoreau was the same in his little hut, uh, Walden, by the Wal on Walden Pond, you know. And he would swim every day, every morning, and he said it brought back the heroic ages. And there is something about the kind of romance of the water that really reinvents you. You know, you are reborn from this amniotic fluid. You know, you 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 physically your your head has your body has to come back alive after you're subjected to severe cold. So your fingers, you know, I, I tremble a lot when I when after I've been swimming for maybe up to half an hour or an hour. Um, uh, but that, you're coming back to life. You're being reminded that you are a physical uh, person. That you know that that that, that your body. Um, you're part of the world. You're not up a part from it. You are a part of it. There were two things going on in my head at the same time just then, and they both collided, and now they've both wiped each other out. <laughs> um, on the subject of the storm mm. that you went swimming in and then even you wouldn't go swimming in, uh. you talk about discovering... Now, I don't know this bird. It's a dead avocet. Yes. Do you say avocet? Yeah, avocet, yes. Right. And you describe it beautifully and at length. For a whole page, the description of this avocet goes on. I don't know whether you've read it. And um, it's exotic allure as if it were a minor Egyptian god. It's exquisite, this bird. <laughs> Thank you. And then, with a wrench and a twist, I pulled off the head. Now, what's going on there? Well, it was dead. <laughs> no, no, no. I to, but nevertheless. Yeah. Um, I suppose... <coughs> I think one of the big problems about writing about nature is this sense of cataloguing things or giving things labels and names. And um, I try and resist that, but I do collect things. Uh, and I collect things from the shore. And the shore where I swim is an urban shore. It's overlooked by a refinery, a big refinery, um, power station, shipping containers, um, the liners, sometimes a number of liners going up and down. It's a so Southampton. Visible. Southampton, yes, Southampton. And, um, but as a result of that um, egress and ingress of immigration and emigration of people and ideas and disease and art and war and all those things, the Titanic, the troops of Agincourt, Vikings, Romans, Neolithic uh, people, um, they've left behind their traces. Uh, I don't find anything Neolithic, but I do find medieval bits and bobs, and I find shards of Georgian glass, and, and I find condoms, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's everything is there, you know. So you can see the world, the world, the passage of time represented in these layers, and they're com 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 constantly being churned up by the water. So, for instance, I found two First World War revolvers there. Um, from people coming back from the war who were told just before they were getting back into port to throw their souvenirs overboard because they wouldn't be allowed to take them into England. So, yeah. But it's, it's that sense of history. He will it? tell me why he wrenched off the bird's head. Oh, sorry, yeah, there. damn. I know, sorry. It's my, I'm the Ronnie Corbett of literature, <laughs> so I've been told. Um, <laughs> let me tell you a story. Um, I wrenched it off because it's... It's a very precious bird. You don't see, you very, very seldom see them, um, uh, certainly not dead. And it has this scoop of a bill, which is like a Japanese musical instrument in, in miniature. Um, and it's as though the bill, bird, bird actually flute, flutes through, through this. And it, it's got a little uptip um, where it scoops the water. Mm. And to me, that was the kind of focus of its absolute beauty. It's all black and white. It is like a sort of piece of netsuki. 
And um, it just, the end tipping tip of this, to have this, to me, felt really special. Yeah. I didn't want to leave it there to just rot and be smashed up. I yeah. wanted to bring it home. Yeah. Is your house filled with beachy detritus? Yeah. Or detritus? It, it is. The other, the, sadly, last time I was down under, when I was, uh, I did a residency in Tasmania, and actually my house was burgled while I was away, and the police wouldn't investigate until I got back, so I had to fly back early, and I got back, and um, I got to the house, and um, a, a sequence of five police officers arrived. I, God knows why. It's only a burglary. And they were going around the house, and they were asking me, um, you know, what's missing, uh, as in, how can you tell? <laughs> and the guys, the policeman said, um, so was this house like this before you left, sir? <laughs> <laughs> And then I was thinking, I said, oh, no, no, yeah, well, whatever. And I took them up to my study, which is the most tidy part. And then I suddenly realized, Jesus, I've got lots of things here I shouldn't have. And I think oh, what, that like? bones and All right. weapons. Not pee pipes, really. <laughs> no, no, oh. no. But, um, and, and I was standing in the room and I was saying, well, it's funny, they haven't actually taken things that are quite valuable in this room. And policeman said, would that be that whaling harpoon behind you, sir? <laughs> And he'd done maritime archaeology at university. Uh, sure imagine. Enough. I know. Yeah, so I, I could have been done for that, but luckily Did you get it wasn't. Anything back? Uh, no, sadly. No, no. What do you think they got away with? Well, they took my mum's jewellery, ah. um, which is kind of annoying, but nothing much else. I don't think they could, they were probably really freaked out when my, when my house was like, yeah. whoa. Because yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of bones and a lot of stones. And, ah. Bits and things. Yeah. I'm sorry they got away with your mum's jewelry. Yeah, I though. was upset about that. But, um, your mother died in, in 2006. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you write about that. Yeah. You're living in the house that you grew up yes. in. Yes, yes. There's a lot of attachment there because yeah. Southampton is not the most interesting place to be. Uh, that's why I like it. it. It doesn't have an identity. No one talks about it. You know, they talk about Manchester or Brighton. You know what Brighton, you know, if I talk to you about Brighton, if you've been to UK, you know what Brighton's like, you know, uh, Bristol. But Southampton has no identity because it's a place that no one stops in. They go there to go somewhere else, um, support. Um, um, I really like the, uh, that I'm not defined by where I live and that I can write about it in the way I do. And I think it's quite surprising. People think, oh, okay, that's, you know, even the idea of swimming in Southampton water is anathema to everyone, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's the idea of being, uh, there's a word, um, uh, philopatry uh, means being loyal to the site of your birth. Uh, and I realised coming here that why I like coming here is that I know I, know I have to migrate back there. I couldn't go back anywhere else. I, I belong there. I'm Philopatris. I'm loyal to the site of my birth. Like a migratory bird. I, exactly. I do or feel an like eel. that. Yeah. Eel. Yes. 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 Ah. I like that. Um, which came first for you, the whales or Moby Dick? That's a really good question. That's such a good question because. They it, say that when they don't know the answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know this. Uh, no, yeah, it's uh, trying to buy, 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 buy myself time. No, actually, there, it is a very good question because I remember watching the film of Moby Dick on our little black and white television at home and thinking that there weren't enough whales in it. So I didn't want to read the book. This <laughs> is not from enough whales. <laughs> um, but at the same time, myself and my sisters were really sensitized to Wales by the whole sort of, um, you know, that moment at which um, Roger Payne, scientist who lives in Wellington, or at least he was living in Wellington, um, dropped his hydrophone into the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean off Bermuda and recorded the sound of the humpback whale mm. and gave it a voice. Uh, that was what, for me, brought, brought the whale to life because mm. it, ha it had a kind of, a song, well, obviously a song, but it kind of sounded like a lament for its what what we'd done to it. Um, You're anthropomorphizing unashamedly. I, I was talking about this this morning uh, in, in the context of Moby Dick. I I anthropomorphize because I can't speak whale. And if I had the vocabulary of a whale, I would talk to you about the whales in their in their language. But I, I don't, and I can only talk about whales in the context of being a human being, because that's all I am. I would like to transcend my speciesdom, but I can't. Um, and so um, 
I, scientists, you know, it's a great scientific um, no-no to, to anthropomorphize because you are then projecting human values onto animals, and, and I, I agree with that. But um, as a writer, I have to be a conduit between the people who don't know the things that I know and the things that I know. And I know quite a lot about whales now, um, and I filter that through my personal experience of the whales, but also the scientists I speak to who cannot speak in this way. And many of them would like to. Many of them would like to. I, um, <clears throat> who's read Moby Dick? Wow, that's a lot of people. Who was inspired to read Moby Dick by Philip Hall's Leviathan? Okay, <laughs> a sprinkling. Um, it's a really hard book. Yeah. But I failed. I mean, I did read it, and I found it a terrible struggle and failed to appreciate mm, it. Mm. You tried three times. Yeah. And yeah. finally got it. Yeah, yeah. I got it because I went there, in a way. I, I, got, I, I really got it because I went to Provincetown, which is in Cape Cod at the very tip of the like, sandy spit held out into the Atlantic. And for me, um, it was intensely romantic place, intensely romantic. I mean, it's, it's part of North America, and so, you know, Boston's only about 80 miles away, and yet it might as well be a millennium away. It's, it's so removed from all that. It's people I know there, their families go back to 1650, you know, very close to when the Pilgrim Fathers arrived, the Western colonization of, of, of America. Uh, and it's, it's a blasted, bleak place in winter, which is when I like to go there, when all the... You see the bones of the place, the leaves from the trees have fallen, and you see this, this you, you see backwards through the backwards abyss of time, as Prospero says in The Tempest. You see back in in back into the future in a way, because it's both then and now and the future. And its beaches are completely deserted. Even in the middle of summer, you can be on a beach there and it's completely deserted. And these are the beaches that Thoreau walked and where he saw saw sharks swimming in little tidal pools and then he'd see an object in the distance maybe a mile away and come closer and closer and closer and it was a human head from a shipwrecked um, person and so it's there's something barbaric about it I like the barbaricness of of shores like New Zealand which has many barbaric shores in a way that that they are places which humans try to control, and we know that you actually can't control the sea. Um, uh, there are many reasons for that. But um, So I, I love Provincetown and Cape Cod because they are, they are romantic in the dark sense of the word. They're like a dark mirror of the past. And because they are surrounded by whales, wherever you are, there are, you are, you are never far from a whale there. They are very much present. So they are like these sentinel spirits. They circle around the Cape. It's where they feed, it's where they play, it's where they have sex, um, much like the people of the Cape, you know. They're a mirror of that. Um, and uh, the people who live there have a very direct, direct connection to the sea. And my, the woman who's my landlady, Pat, Pat de Groot, who's very much part of this book, she is, she's, uh, she is my sea lady and my muse. And she sounds an extraordinary woman. She really Tell is. us a bit more about her. So she's 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 um, she was um, born in England actually, uh, and and uh, was forced to uh, emigrate to uh, uh, New York in 1940 when her mother, who was Jewish, was afraid that for the fate of uh, of her Jewish family um, if the Nazis invaded. So Pat was evacuated um, with her brother to to to, to um, New York. Ended up in Provincetown. Um, and just connected with the sea, she married a, a Dutch expressionist uh, a painter uh, who's a friend of Jackson Pollock and Rothko. Um, um, and, uh, but she just became this feral person. She always used to tell me that she Because her mother was this swept-up socialite. Her right? mother was Truman Capote's um, interior decorator. She decorated his um, uh, black and white ball, I mean, the most famous party of the 20th century. Um, uh, and she was very rich. The family had owned Macy's. Her, Pat's great-grandparents had died. They were the elderly couple on the Titanic in their James Cameron movie who go on to the, uh, refuse to get into the lifeboats and go 
down with the ship in, in each other's arms. Um, they, were the Macy, the, they were the people who owned Macy's. Um, so she had a very rich background, which she kind of disavowed, and she really hated high society. Um, so she lived this kind of wild, hippie life. Um, even in these, she was she died last month. And um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, yeah, yeah. It was difficult. Um, so, um, yeah, she would, she, but they, t she died, she'd already died even before she died because they took her out of the house because she had Alzheimer's. Ugh. And she'd forgotten, she'd forgotten, she'd forgotten to, um, she'd forgotten to uh, hate, really. She's a very good hater. <laughs> uh, she was, t she knew what she liked and what she didn't like, she wouldn't have any, um, you know, uh, time for. Your book's dedicated to her, I think, mm. isn't it? Um, She'd already been afflicted with Alzheimer's by the time you wrote this? Sadly, yes. So I, I hoped that uh, I'd be in time to go back and read it to her. But she was, I mean, she's still, last time I saw her in October, I went back to give a, a valedictory speech for her at the Art Association there where they were honouring her. She was still sort of okay then, but well, her, her memory had really gone. But um, Doesn't that piss you off it really because does. everything we're told yeah. is that you keep your brain active mm. and you keep your body active yeah, exactly. and you reduce your chances yeah, yeah, yeah. but I she know. was a perfect no. example of somebody who should never have fallen absolutely no. no she could still at the age of 88 raise her foot above her head she was still she used to it, it, quite recently she only recently she stopped kayaking out to the bay to feed floundered killer whales so that she could draw them uh she's an extraordinary woman um and really she was my punk godmother in a way she was like sort of just she was a total total rebel she would still be sunbathing sunbathing naked in the dunes at the age of 88 which outraged public decency and the um, park rangers tried to give her a ticket and she said well you can do what you like i've been doing this for 70 years just that's gonna stop me <laughs> Will, start, you, will you still go back to provincetown yeah then? i've got good friends there but i've been the the, the thing was that her house Beautiful descriptions of Thank your house you. and where you stay in the house. It's, yeah. it's a ship. It is a ship. It's like a ship, like an ark, um, just only only tentatively tethered to the to the shore. The, the water goes, the sea goes run underneath it, and it's full of all these cubby holes and hideaways and sort of conduits with her feral cats living in. And you know, I've been staying there for fifteen years, uh, and I discovered a staircase I'd never seen. It's unbelievable. It was, it's like the TARDIS of a house. What will happen to it now? Uh, it's been sold. An artist has bought it, but the magic has gone. You know, it was, you talk about my house being a hoarder's. You know, it, her house was just full of dead birds and, and whale bones and uh, just ext and extraordinary works of art. She'd known so many really great artists. She was in Paris in the 50s with Samuel Beckett and Jean-Paul Sartre and Lucien Freud. Um, you know, she, she was a really hip woman. Um, will you write a, a, a biography of her, do you think? No, I, I think I've probably done as much as I can about Pat in here. Um, it was very difficult. I, 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 she, she really resisted me writing about her. She didn't want me to write about her. Um, she didn't want her past written about. She didn't want her family written about. Um, she didn't want to be defined by that. But eventually, I, I sort of brought her around to the fact that I said, look, someone's going to write your obituary, and I, I want you to have this out in public before you've gone, you know. And so she did agree. But, um, but I was very lucky, the New York Times, I, I got a New York Times obituary published of her. And so, you know. It seems to me you have a knack of persuading people um, to do things. You had to work hard on Stephen Tennant yeah. um, to get him to mm. talk to you. Mm. Um, I don't know whether people are familiar with Stephen Tennant. It was the subject of one of Philip's previous books. He was famous for being famous. Mm. Um, and very modern mm. in terms of what we're thinking about mm. now, gender mm. fluidity. Yeah, yeah. Um, you could talk a little about him. Mm. Well, I, I, the reason why I find people like Stephen, Stephen was a sort of aesthete from the 1920s who who latterly, when I met, met, met him, had been living in a house which he hadn't really moved from since 1945. So I saw him in 1986, 87. And um, he, he, he loved the sea. Uh, he used to collect seashells. But because, as we all know, seashells look better with water running on them, he put them in his bath. He didn't, he didn't take a bath from October to May. 
Um, so he just left the taps running on the shells, so they look beautiful in the bath. Um, he was like an ex he was the lover of Siegfried Sassoon. He was the patron of Cecil Beaton. He knew Virginia Woolf and Willa Cather and E.M. Forster very well. T.E. Lawrence. But he's, this, like, he's like this Zelig figure through through history again, a bit like Pat actually. He knew all these people who has, himself had not been written about. Um, but uh, for me, that sense for me, one of the things that got me about him and sort of ties into Rising Tide from Star as well because of this extraordinary image of him, which is he almost does look like David Bowie, only in 1927. He's wearing this kind of amazing rubber mat with a fur collar, and he's got Vaseline on his eyelids and gold dust in his hair. And it, Caroline Lowell, who was um, Lucian Freud's wife, later married to Robert Lowell, um, told me she, he was the David Bowie of their generation. She could pick him, couldn't she? Oh, yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> I know. Going yeah. from him to him. I know, I know. Challenging. I know. No, no, absolutely. How do you know all these people? Like, how are you, how did you first get to know these terribly famous, flamboyant, talented people? Uh, I just wormed my way in there, really. <laughs> um, I, I I used to write for Harper's and Queen, which is quite a posh magazine. Yes. Uh, but how I, did you get that gig? Um, I'd written for The Observer, and I'd written for Blitz magazine before that, and I made my own fanzine before that. So what started out so as... So it was music. Yeah. Which, music which segued out. into yeah. culture? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I was very interested in that. And I was very interested in... You mentioned uh, the fluid thing that's always been really interesting to me, you know, because I was, I idolized Bowie, but David Bowie is responsible for me. Um, and uh, he was responsible, he created me. Um, uh, and you, I mean, you, you pay um, sincere homage to David Bowie mm, in this book. Mm, mm. Not everybody will get that unless no. they've seen the movie no, or they no, know no, Bowie. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, um, it's evident that he was, God, when he yeah. died, you must have been obliterated. Well, especially because I just, I'd gone to Cape Cod to finish this book, and which begins with him and ends with him. Uh, and he went and died on me. And uh, I'd written it as a love letter to him. And I'd already got the sea inside to him. I, I had his address. Um, so he personally got the book. Uh, and then I was, I took, I wrote the catalogue, one of the catalogue essays for the Bowie show that was touring the Victoria and Albert Museum, which has just ended a three-year tour in, the, in Brooklyn. And um, these were all messages I was sending to him as an open invitation, because I didn't want to meet him as a fan. I, I mean, I knew people who'd worked with him, like the Pet Shop Boys, and I could have maybe engineered a sort of uh, meeting, but I, I wanted to meet him under my own terms, and it's too late. Mm. So, so what was with Pat and David Bowie? This mm. is a sad thing. Yeah, it is in a way, but it's also a celebration. It's a celebration of the sea uh, yeah. and the freedom that it gives. And, you know, we talk about the fluidity now. It's really, you know, it's a really uh, 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 fashionable thing to address. But um, because Bowie was doing that back in the 70s anyway. Yeah. Stephen Tennant was doing it back in the 1920s. Um, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron were doing it back in the... It's always been... It's, it, it's, uh, it's like a non-genetic sort of meme that runs through history where, you know, people who do not feel comfortable in what society has projected upon them, you know, whatever that is, whether that's, you know, what, what your, 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 your nationhood, your name, your gender, your speciesdom, um, you know, the way that people categorize you. I, I've never wanted to be categorized. You know, that's why I write increasingly uncategorizable books. So they can't be put on a shelf um, under the label, this is this. No. Um, because no one... What are they shelved in? <laughs> you wouldn't believe what they're shelved in sometimes. It's really funny. I wrote a book called Spike Island, which was kind of a weird thing. They shelved that under nursing. Um, but that was a military prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hospital. military hospital, but right. um, but it kind of yeah. But it was hopefully a bit more than that. But um, of course, yeah. it would be. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, but but yeah, and I think I think you know I think it's the next barrier is this sense of, you know, we hold dominion over the world, and uh, because we name all these things, and as soon as you name something, you appropriate it, because uh, it's like anthropomorphism in a way. But it's this. It's this act of, of appropriation of, of saying that um, that's part of our world now. So we know the name for you. So we've sorted you out. You are in that box and we can deal with you. Mm. 
Um, and that's what I really dislike um, because I think that's all, that's all about control and that ends up, and that's always, to me, it ends up in abuse, I think, you know, and, and increasingly as I get older, I realise that animal abuse is absolutely equal to human abuse and that um, taking an orca, uh, as we speak, orcas are being stolen from the ocean by the Russians and sold to Chinese marine parks. I don't use those nationality um, things uh, um, uh, in, in a pejorative way, but, uh, but, but just to describe it. Um, and to me, those, that, and, and I, 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 those are equivalent to human genocide. I mean, the same way, it's the same, but it's only by disassociating yourself from the natural world or from the human world that you can perform those kinds of abuses, I think, so. You've seen an orca in captivity, haven't you? Yeah, that was the first whale I saw, and that really disturbed me, in fact, you know, because I we, we were, my sisters and I really wanted to see a whale in the wild, uh, not in the wild, but we just wanted to see a whale, and that was the only one we got to see, and it was in Windsor Safari Park, uh, which is now Legoland, uh, outside outside London, and and, 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 and I, I was so excited, we were sitting at the front of the pool there and waiting for this whale to come in, and it swam in with this incredible high dorsal fin, you know, a two-meter high dorsal fin that orcas have. It's majestic male, it was a Ramu, its name, um, but its dorsal fin had flopped over as a kind of sign of its degenescence, its uh, captivity. And, um, and that was, for me, that was a moment of apostasy. I couldn't, I couldn't place any more faith in, in the way uh, uh, human beings related to this animal, because I could see they put them in swimming pools, uh, concrete swimming pools. In, basically solitary confinement and and even as young as i was i knew how bad and wrong that was no what was that movie the documentary blackfish was yeah it? yeah i mean that was yes. pretty undeniable yeah absolutely yeah um that's about the orcas in captivity yeah. essentially yeah and how they go insane yeah absolutely as what, human beings. what whales have you not swum with um <laughs> well it's difficult to swim with blue whales or fin whales because they're so fast they don't hang around. They're not interested in you, actually. I mean, I've been very close to those whales. Um, um, but, uh, and also right whales, I wouldn't because right whales are really finickety creatures. They, they're very, they're actually very, um, because they're slow moving, they don't, a sperm whale will just turn around you. It's, it's, it'll be a, a, a 20 meter long animal, but it'll turn around you like that. They'll know exactly where you are, but they're kind of right well. The way they're feeding, they're feeding at the surface, they're skim feeding like this. They're not really focused on anything else. They won't go into you purposely, but they can like, you know. Right. Um, so I certainly wouldn't swim with those. I, when we were, I was in Sri Lanka last year when we were swimming with a pod of 150 sperm whales. And uh, they start, part of their group suddenly, suddenly started moving towards the north and they pulled together in a group of about 30 uh, and we got in the water with them, myself and my dive partner. Uh, and as we did, I thought I could see dolphin with them and I realized they weren't dolphin, it was killer whales and the killer whales were attempting to predate the sperm whales and they'd rounded them up and the sperm whales were like flank to flank like this, protecting the females and the young in the center. Um, and the orcas, the orcas were trying yeah. to kill the baby sperm yeah, whales. Yeah, and they're sort of swimming round and then coming up in the middle of the, of, the, of the group of sperm whales. Um, but the sperm whales at the same time, because we went underneath, and when we could see this, the, the sperm whales kept diving up and down like that to stop the orca getting in. Uh, but then the orca peeled off and started coming towards us. So we quickly got out of the water. Um, then we Would moved. the orca have damaged you or killed you? Well, as we... Because I we, thought killer whales in terms of humans was a bit of a misnomer. I know, exactly. but. As we left the area, the, the, when the orcas stopped their attack, they were being frustrated by the sperm whales, although we now realize they've been partly frustrated by the presence of our boat. As we moved off, the orca moved off too. And we went to look at them because they seemed to be very surface active, a lot of tail slapping and stuff. And as we got there, they started swimming around us, closer and closer and closer, and they rammed the boat five times. Ah. And then I looked over to one side and five of them were coming straight at the boat to create a compression wave to tip us over, like they would with a seal on a flipper, yeah. on, a, on a nice flow. Uh, and that point I really realized that, well, actually I realized the beauty and that extraordinary yeah, intelligent yeah, yeah, things, yeah. but I also However, nearly lost my control of my bodily functions yeah. because it's just like 
fuck, we're going to be killed. I mean, we were 18 nautical miles from the coast. There's no coast guard. We didn't have a GPS, no life. We just wanted a 19-foot um, fiberglass fishing boat, you know, yeah. with a couple of Sri Lankan sailors, fishermen. Um, but, yeah, so we did... We got away, um, but um, that, that was not uh, accidental. That was a concerted attack. Whether or not it was a, a sort of training exercise. You should be exercise. in captivity, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. Terrifying. Yeah. Mm, so was but terrifying. also a sign of deep intelligence. Really. But, well, that was the thing for me. It was just to see the way they attacked. And, of course, the, um, everyone's saying there's the big male there with the big dorsal fins. Oh, look at him. He's doing the, leading the attack. It's not. It's the matriarch at the back. You know, the, the orca, uh, uh, there's only three species in the world, animals, and as far as we know now, who ha ha suffer the menopause, humans, pilot whales, and orca. And orca, postmenopausal females, not only have a relative, uh, have a role to play in society, they have the, they have the matriarchal role, they control society. So um, the, they direct all the attacks. Um, all, all the culture, all the knowledge has been passed down through the matrilineal line, in, in, especially in toothed whale societies, so dolphins, orca, sperm whales. Um, they're the only other animals, as far as we know, um, whose evolution is affected by culture as opposed to instinct. So they are very like us. Right, um, knowledge passed on. Exactly. Right. Specific knowledge, absolutely. And, and to see those orca behaving like that was to see that in action, and it was incredible. I mean, I've never, I've, uh, I've never been the subject of any animal attack, from, apart from you know, maybe the old dog bite, you know, when I'm cycling. But um, to see these animals, it's, it's extraordinary, you know. Because it's, it's just the organization. It's the organization. Mm. Uh, that the way that you can see that they're directing one another, and that it's very, it's very intentional. There's nothing actually. It's not nothing random about yeah. it. You feel those brains. Let's hope they never develop legs. Because <laughs> yes. then we'll really be in trouble. <laughs> yes. um, I went to ask you, and yeah. I should know the answer to this. Uh, you know, a whale bit Captain Ahab's leg off. Yes. And that's why. Yeah. What whale? What sort of whale was it? That was a sperm whale. Those the Would ones. Would it? We were talking about that this morning, actually. Funny enough. Sorry. Um, probably no, 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 no. I, I, I only been in our little group, but um, uh, um, probably not actually. Well, maybe accidentally, if if Ahab had fallen into the whale's mouth, you know, you know that, that would be bad luck. It would it? be bad luck. Um, but, you, but you know that it, it, in the book, it's not only his leg that he, he, he had bitten off. No. Because um, my friend says it should be called Moby Nodick. That's... Said, yes. I really had forgotten that. <laughs> Maybe I missed that. Um, would you mind reading us a piece? No, of course. I'll read a short little bit here. Thank you. Whales are a curse that won't let you go, you said. <laughs> let, yeah. Is your next book going to be whaley as well? Well, I don't think I can keep them out. They keep coming in. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they, they just work their way in there. Dennis called me with the news. Minutes later, we were driving down to the harbour. The day before, on the whale watch boat, we'd watched a pod of common dolphin moving through the clear waters in search for food. Among them was this individual. Such small groups of dolphins have close matrilineal relationships and are intensely loyal. Did it die in the night on the dark and lonely beach, calling for its family as they called back? This beautiful naked animal, now lying at my bended knees, was as smooth and patterned as a piece of porcelain. There was nothing morbid about it. It still seemed full of life. I ran my hands over its body. The fins are finely shaped, rubbery and tactile, caressed and caressing when alive. The taut flanks taper to the muscular tail. The eyes are disconcertingly open, unseeing, untouched by gulls which often fall to feed on stranded cetaceans even before they'd expired. Clearly displayed on its underbelly is the animal's genital slit, flanked by two smaller mammary slits, betraying in this indecent exposure its sex. I inserted my finger ostensibly to investigate if she, as she had now become, had bred, but in reality out of prurient curiosity. I say a Hail Mary for my sins. After we had recorded her dimensions as if measuring her out for a new outfit, 
I stretch out beside her for comparison, not for scientific reasons, but my own, head to tail, toe to beak, sensing how similar we are. I imagine her as a human in a dolphin wetsuit. I think of her bones, lighter than mine, since they do not have to bear the full weight of gravity. I might replace my burdensome skeleton with hers, transformed from the inside out. I think about how much of my life is spent vertical or horizontal, upright on land or level with the water, a sensation known as pre preoception, the apprehension of one's body in space, the way we want to be comfortable in the world, yet are never really reconciled to the business of being physical. I lie there like a lover, her body a mirror for my own. Thank you. I found that a little shocking. <laughs> Has anybody else said that to you? Yeah. I don't know why I, don't know why I did it. I, it's, it's not, I don't, I don't know go, why but... you did it, and I don't know why you said you did it. <laughs> well, yeah. As in, it was supposedly in the interest of science, Dennis, my the chap who is the, from I4, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, was there to take samples of the, of the dolphin and, uh, and had to determine whether she was a breeding female, but still doesn't excuse it, does it? No, but, you know, full marks for confessing it, but it makes me... What would John Waters say now? Well, yes, no, exactly. He would say, yeah. I told you so. <laughs> He's very, very strange chap. Yeah. <laughs> it's true that you can't get whales out of it, but the astonishing thing is mm. in this book mm. that it's the ocean, really. Mm. The ocean is the subject. Mm. But you manage to find a oceanic reason mm. to talk about so many people mm. that you really want to talk about. Yeah. Sometimes, mm. maybe a s slight link. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, Owen. Yeah. Was he really that watery? Oh, yeah. I mean, Owen was obsessed with swimming as I am. He, he swam all the time when he was brought up by his father to swim. Um, his father was this really strange character, Tom Owen, who was born... Well, he lived in, in um, Oswestry and then later on in, uh, 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 near, near, just outside Liverpool. And on this his, is Wilfred Owen we're talking about. Yeah, Wilfred Owen, the war poet. His father would go into, into the port dressed up as a sailor on his days off, pretending to be a captain and bring people home. <laughs> uh, and so this was kind of communicated to Wilfred, who was... Um, I mean, you don't associate Owen with, 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 with the water because he's had his death projected upon him, you know, like Virginia Woolf and like Shelley and like so many sort of like, quote, doomed people who lost their lives to water um, uh, in a way, which Owen almost did, um, um, that you see them through the lens of their early death. But of course, they didn't, they didn't see themselves that way. Um, uh, 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 and, and Owen was this vital young man with his life ahead of him and he, he would swim wherever he, he could and, and usually in the company of a handsome young man, he, he, he was gay and, uh, and um, he, last thing he ever did in England off Folkestone was, was go swimming uh, off Folkestone Beach and talks about this young officer swimming with him who was this, in this sort of bit of sort of Daniel Craig moment coming up out of the water and his Probably not wearing swimming trunks. I think it's actually. Colin Firth you're talking about. Oh, Colin Firth. Well, yeah, I was thinking of James Bond as well. But, oh. Oh, <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, Colin Firth as well. But uh, it's um, uh, and then Owen died uh, crossing a canal um, on, on the Western Front. Um, it's his centenary this November. Uh, just making a short film about it. But what really interested me about Owen is how again the fluidity of his gender and his life and his sense of his, you know, I talk about the dolphin's sense of bodily space and bodily, um, the dimensions that you take up and how one feels about that. Sonia last night, her reading about, about the body, you know, how people are defined by the body, about the notion of the perfectible body. We are so obsessed with the perfectible body. I have a really imperfect body. I'm a weak person I, I don't you know that's why I, the reason why I swim all the time is to kind of assert the fact that I don't have to be you know some buff sort of you know extraordinary athlete to to do that you know um, uh, and and Owen had this same very extraordinary relationship to 
to his physical space. And that was the expression of that was through swimming. And it was the same with Oscar Wilde. He is the only wild swimmer, as far as I can see. Yeah. Um, and his son said he used to swim like a shark, you know. Uh, Byron, who, of course, was, was bisexual, if not probably just straight gay, to be honest. Um, he have a club foot, Byron? He had a club foot, and, and of course, that, that, you know, the imperfectibility of his body was, was absolutely overturned by swimming. That's one reason why it he didn't, liked swim. It uh, didn't impede him No, no, might have even helped. <laughs> it's like a, you know, webbed foot. Um, but um, that's the only time he felt elegant. The contemporary descriptions of Byron talk about him staggering into a room, staggering, because he walked, you know, he could, he could hardly walk properly, you know. Um, so he felt elegant in the water. Shelley, too, you know, he saw a poetic aspect to being in the water. Unfortunately, he never learned to swim. Um, uh, he, he was always jumping in rivers in the sea, but <laughs> sinking to the bottom. Uh, he said, I, I might be, he, 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 told, uh, he told one of his friends off for rescuing him. He said, in a moment, I might have been in another planet. And the other, of course, the other thing about the sea is it's timeless. So you are, you also suspended from time. So like Bowie, like... Byron, like Prospero, like Virginia Woolf, like Sylvia Plath, these characters moving in and out through the water, through the slipstream of time. My favourite quote about Bowie is when he was recording the soundtrack, what would be the soundtrack to The Man Who Fell to Earth, but became the album Low. And he asked his producer what a certain uh, piece of equipment met, what did in the studio. And his, stu his um, producer said, it fucks with the fabric of time. That's my favourite quote. When the paperback of this came out, I just put on Twitter, I put, it fucks with the fabric of time. <laughs> Someone tweeted back, said, what does? <laughs> I thought, that book's not for you. Um, no, do not read this yeah. book. You'll see mine's even waterlogged. I read it Excellent, in lovely, I love it. It's good, isn't it? Um, we have time for questions. If you have a question, stick up your hand and a microphone will come to you. Here we are down here. What is your next book going to be, by the way? I don't know, but it, it's definitely going to have the C in it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just moving towards it at the moment, trying to find things. Because um, all my books happen nowadays, they happen from my experiences and what, what, what happens to me, and then that I start finding a story in that. So Swimming the dolphins in Akaroa the day before yesterday, that was pretty extraordinary. Hector's dolphins, you were saying? Hector's dolphins, because they formed this kind of squadron around me, about six of them, and it's as though they'd adopted me in their pod and they were taking me off. They oh, literally... come off. No, it, if you see I the I said photograph... to him earlier, I said, I've tried to swim with Hector's dolphins. They were off like mm. rabbits. Mm. <laughs> you know, but no, <laughs> Philip Hall makes friends with Hector's Sorry. dolphins. That's amazing. Do we have photographic evidence? We do, it? actually. Uh, Sorry, question please. <laughs> thank you. Um, this is brilliant stuff. I really want to thank you for thank you. taking us in all these places. Um, I want to ask you a question about fluidity because you speak beautifully about it and, and breaking down boundaries, but we seem to be living in a world where the opposite yeah. is happening and yeah. people are increasingly being put in boxes, put in bubbles, yeah. building walls. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And once you know that someone's in one box, you make all kinds of assumptions about, oh, therefore they're in that box and that box and that box. So there's a, this huge move away from fluidity in one sense. Do you have a comment on how we can start to walk back from that and undo that? I think our, our, you could start with your our disconnection from the natural world where, you know, you look at, I mean, dolphins, which are by definition fluid animals, I mean, they don't observe any any gender differentiation or when it comes to pleasure, you know. They're like the bonobos of the ocean, they are. aren't they? Mm, I, They'll I, fuck anything. They were. Last time I was here in Kaikoda, I was swimming with a pod of big, super pod of dusky It's going to get rude now, isn't it? Yes. Okay, go on. So three times in five minutes. Not with me, but with each other. I'm glad we clarified that. Sorry, I interrupted your answer. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, so I think, you know, I think um, uh, uh, that sense of uh, having removed ourselves from the natural world um, is part of that, that ability to see ourselves as separate. You know, because we don't, because we have this thing called vocabulary, it seems to uh, have bestowed on us this separateness from the rest of the animal 
kingdom or even the word kingdom is, is anthropomorphic, isn't it? Um, uh, and so I think that's, that needs to be broken down. John Fowles wrote a wonderful essay called The Tree in which he talks about the um, way, you know, people name things. Um, and, and he maintains that actually you can't even write about nature because the actual experience of nature is you can't put into words. So even by writing about it, you are bespoiling it in a way. Um, the trouble about any human cultural activity, it is about you immediately kind of create something for it, a frame for it. Um, you know, the, the, the act of witnessing something in the natural world is, is an act of communion. Or it, it's an act, that it, it's something which is beyond all, all this that we're talking about. So, you know, when you meet a whale or you have an encounter with a rabbit or a deer or whatever it is, there's what John Berger called the narrow abyss of miscomprehension. Uh, and to cross that, you can only cross, I don't think you can cross that with language. Um, so, I, 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 indeed, should you even try to cross it? You know, so I don't know the answer to, to your question, but for me, it's become, you know, for me, who I, I was always really interested, I, I was always interested in the way that people like Stephen Tennant or whatever, but I felt that the, um, the way to sort things out is to sort out that disconnection in a way. That's just for me. For other people, it's many other ways. Anybody else? Yes, I have a question. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, I read Moby Dick as a classic comic first and then read the book. Yeah, <clears throat> I, uh, I have uh, two ancestral connections in New Zealand, one Pakeha side and one a little bit of Maori side. On my Pakeha side, they were associated with the whaling at Preservation Inlet, and on my Maori side, they were people called the Waitaha. They spoke with the whale, so I'm sorry you can't speak whale. Mm. Uh, but I just want to tell a little story and then ask you a question. Mm. A few years ago, my wife and daughter and I went on whale watch in Queensland, and the whales came very close to the boat, and I spoke to the whales in Maori. Mm. And my daughter said, Dad, stop it, you're so embarrassing. So I stopped. But a member of the crew came and said, how the fuck did you do that? <laughs> Can you come back? I said, sorry, brother. But what I wonder is, have you struck any other indigenous people? Have you spoken to First Nation, Nation people up on the coast of Alaska and Canada mm -hmm. and in the southern regions of the Americas mm -hmm. who have a relationship mm -hmm. with the whales mm -hmm. in that they talk mm -hmm. to them? Mm -hmm. That's a really good observation and question. And of course, the Māori have more names for whales than we English people have, or I English people have. Um, uh, and the Haida people of the Northwest Pacific, you know, it's, it's a very Pacific Rim thing as well, I think, you know, that, that, that yeah, in the Northwest Pacific, uh, you know, where the, the, the orca, the killer whale is almost, it's not deified, but it, it's the spirit. Uh, uh, and uh, they have these amazing um, uh, mashups where they have a sort of uh, animals which are part raven, part wolf, part orca. Incredible creatures, you know, like sort of transformer animals. Um, because they absolutely don't, they believe, rather like the Maori, I think, that the way that the world works is not through demarcations. These things move in and out of one another, you know. I understand that Maori see a relationship between the whale and the kari tree. Um, uh, and of course, the Maori sort of arrival on Aotearoa was, was, was on, with whales, wasn't it? Which actually figures because they possibly were Polynesians following the migratory routes of whales. So that sense of this movement, which, which doesn't really recognize time and species and space, that, you know, there's a continuum. Um, and as we get closer, you know, it always makes me, slightly makes me laugh that science takes a long time to catch up with these things. We now realize that the ravens that the hider um, uh, venerate or have a connection with are the most intelligent of all birds. They have an intense intelligence. 
and that the, these, these levels of demarcation, these hierarchies that we have constructed, which are a result of the Enlightenment, which I think was a disastrous process in some ways for human beings, because it started all that process of separating art and science, um, of, 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 of creating all these ways of control. Um, uh, that, that, that before that, you know, there was a very different relationship to the natural world, and you know, the, the, it's a more natural relationship, I suppose, because you don't you don't end up exploiting it in the way the industrial nations have done. You know, you just because you have a different relationship to it. Um, it's not it's nothing romantic about that. It's just the way it is. It's that that's it's true. Well, it's true as far as I can see. Anyway. There was another hand up here at the front. Um, thank you very much. I really enjoyed listening to you. I would live under the water if I could, <laughs> just waiting for something to be developed. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's a total freedom. A little bit of a different question. Do you have a theory or understanding of why whales beach themselves? Yeah, so that it's something I've looked at quite a lot because um, there's lots of really interesting theories. I mean, obviously, there are anthropogenic causes, so causes that human beings have created. So noise, um, certainly we know that beaked whales are forced to, forced to go to the surface too quickly and they suffer the bends um, because they've been freaked out by military sonar or oil ser seismic surveys. Um, but very interestingly, a big group of sperm whales that stranded in 2016 in the UK, the Netherlands, Germany, um, and France, um, there have been linked to um, a big eruption of solar activity, which that year was creating a lot of aurora, aurora borealis, and australis, um, and that those that those um, were, were those uh, pulses were actually uh, interfering their electromagnetic GPS. And, and driving them into shallow waters where they, they couldn't thrive, they couldn't feed. So there's many, many ways in which those whales uh, might, reasons why they might strand bad weather, um, illness. They're very loyal animals. They're mostly toothed whales that strand, like pilot whales, sperm whales, um, and, and dolphins. And they're, they're very loyal to one another um, because oh, 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 Tooth whales define themselves by each other by being with one another. It's another lesson for us. They can't be apart. If you see a, a, a pilot whale, a dolphin living apart, it's because it's been possibly mentally ill. There, there is mental illness in cetaceans. Um, so um, so uh, that very loyalty is sometimes almost suicidal. They will follow one another in, you know, to support one another. They will do that um, uh, from sperm whales down to pilot whales and dolphins. Um, so the, 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 the very sense of the mortality of that has a beauty as well, in the beauty of their communality, of their being together. Home for a whale is other whales. Um, that, that's how they operate. They can't operate without each other because they know how one another thinks. They know how they feel. A dolphin knows how another dolphin feels because of its sonar. It can tell the temperature of its body. It can tell whether it's pissed off or loved up or whatever. You know, dolphins can tell whether humans are pregnant before the humans know they are pregnant. Um, they, are, they live in an entirely different world from us. And I felt that when I swim with spermers. I've swum with spermers many times now. And I've never felt as safe. I'm really scared of swimming. I didn't learn to swim until I was 29. I'm really scared of it. I've never felt so safe as I do when I'm in the water with whales. So they, they have such control. Um, they're not bothered by you at all. Um, uh, um, they, are, they, they are in charge of the choreography of all the encounters. Huge animals, like I say, they just move on a sixpence. They are exquisite. And when they don't want to be there, they're gone. It's like warp factor, warp factor six. Just, you don't even know how they've gone. And they're just gone. It's like, I, I hate the word. I just hate the name sperm whale. You know, it's called sperm whale because the old hunters pierced the head, which was full of this spermaceutical, and they thought it was the animal semen coming out. Sperm whale is such an ugly name. The French name, cachalot, is much prettier, I think. And I see it as a sort of double entendre, although it isn't. A cachalot, cachalot, hider in the water. And when you see them in water, you can only, as close as Kim is to me now, but they'll just go. And 
it's, it's just unbelievable. They just, how do they do that? And it's because they are, they are part of the water and they, even as they dive, you'd expect them to create this great whirling vortex. They leave smooth water behind, you know, so that they are animals that are built to be part of the water. You know, they actually shape, change their shape to dive. So their, their, um, their sense of their bodily shape is entirely part of their environment. It is, it's not a part from it, it's a part of it. Um, and I think that's what you think about when you swim, isn't it? I think that's, because all of that other stuff is suspended. No one's looking at you, judging you from the way you look. Um, you have this, you don't have huge control because we're not generally that brilliant in the water, but you do have a sense of your own beautiful self. Every, everyone's beautiful in the water. Um, sadly, we run out of time because um, the next thing has to come on. I know we could talk all afternoon. Um, Philip Hoare has not inclined me to go swimming at this time of year. <laughs> Where did you go swimming yesterday, by the way? Uh, Akara. And you're going to Kaikoura to do some more whale watching? Um, no, I'm going up to Brisbane. Well, no, I'm going to Nelson tomorrow. Nelson, Nelson tomorrow. Nelson. Okay. Yeah. Are there any whales in Nelson? Uh, not, not, the, not that I know of at the moment, but you never know. I you might just, call the call out. On your swim, put the call out. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks to Philip Hoare. Thank you. Thank you.